Welcome to the Quantum Pod, a podcast by Zapata. In this pod, Bob Sorensen sheds light on quantum computing from the perspective of high-performance computing. All right, welcome to this episode of the Quantum Pod. I have with me Bob Sorensen, who is the Chief Analyst for Quantum Computing at Hyperion Research. Bob, thanks for stopping into the pod. Oh, hi, Ethan. Thanks. Thanks for having me here today. All right. Well, so this is your Quantum Pod, so set the stage for us. What's around you? This can be uh, what it looks like, what it sounds like, even what it smells like. Set the stage. Well, this is this is truly my Quantum Pod. I'm kind of ensconced here down in my study in the in the bottom uh, floor of my house, surrounded by old textbooks, um, computer monitors, and, and every conceivable toy that I can I can uh, respectably have uh, to to keep me distracted uh, for huge chunks of time during the day. Nice. Any any Rubik's cubes? <sighs> no, I, you know I'm terrible at Rubik's cubes. It's really bad. What I do have is, and this is again maybe my, maybe my trinkets are terrible because I'm bad at them. I do have a couple of chess programs. Um, and, and, and I've gotten actually really bad at chess and I know why, um, but, but I can't seem to progress past a certain stage. So, you know, whenever I get caught on something really horrendous at work here, I'll, I'll, I'll let some computer somewhere online beat me horribly at chess. I usually do okay until I make a huge blunder and then, then the computer laughs and then I, 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 you know, I kind of shrink back into my, my regular work day. Awesome. Okay, so let's get started with some rapid fire questions. Don't spend too long on these, just whatever pops into your head first. First one is, what do you find personally uh, most interesting about quantum computing? It's an entirely new way of thinking. My entire background has been in the classical world. I'm an electrical engineer. I took a lot of computer science, a lot of computer design classes. And when I kind of started getting involved in quantum, I realized this is this is a new world. You just can't look at it and say, okay, if this is how does this map into the classical world? It's an entirely new way of thinking. And it requires you to throw out just about everything you knew about classical computing and just take a deep breath and go, okay, I'm going to embrace the, 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 the new technology completely. Otherwise, you just, you just force yourself into, into confusion and, and headaches. Ah, love that. Absolutely agree that headaches abound. Uh, <laughs> there be dragons. Exactly. Uh, okay, next question is, what do you think is the most revolutionary aspect of quantum? Uh, you know, to me, uh, th there's so many different things, but but the big one, of course, is the, the HPC world, which is where I come from, is always about advancing the technology. It's about new performance and it's about new applications. And 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 that's what that's what makes HPC so exciting. And quantum offers that uh, in, in spades. It says not only do you get incredible performance on applications that, you know, functionally were undreamt of. Uh, in the classical world, and you get new applications, things that you just said, we can't do that. The, the, the traveling salesman problem can't be solved uh, in, in, in the time it took the universe to evolve to where it is now. In quantum, you can do that. So it's, it's the idea that you're just breaking down so many boundaries simultaneously with a technology that ultimately will fit in a small closet. And you know, how cool is that? Yeah, super cool. Absolutely. And last one, uh, on your LinkedIn profile, it says that you strongly prefer C to Python. And, you know, here at Zapata, we use a lot of Python. So tell us why we're wrong. Okay, the first one is white spaces. I hate programming <laughs> language with white spaces. Okay, give me curly cues to delimit um, all of my scope in a program. The other thing is I don't like 
someone else telling me about data structures. So I don't want you to give me a tree. I don't want you to give me a link list. I want to build those things myself so I know they're efficient. I know they're as small as they can be and they're as fast as they can be. I don't want someone else to say, here's your world. Now you go play in it. I want to say, let me build my world and I can play in it and have more fun because I built it myself. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Going back to, you've got this very interesting role at Hyperion, which gives you sort of this overview level, um, yeah, overview of the entire quantum ecosystem. So my question to start this all off is how are you seeing the ecosystem evolve? And maybe also how are you seeing the value chain evolve over time? Well, it's interesting. And I'll give you a little bit of background. You know, what we do here is we look at high performance computing wherever it appears. And so it's really more about the pointy end of advanced computing. So 10 years ago, we would be talking about advanced modeling and simulation. How do you, how do you ensure that you're, you know, the wing, the, the, the wing you put on an airplane is the most efficient? Or, or if you crash your car into a, a wall computationally, how can you make that car better? Well, then all of a sudden we started things like, like big data analysis, where you, you crunched huge quantities of data. And that kind of changed the programming paradigm and how machines were built. And then along came AI. And, and NVIDIA and GPUs and deep learning, another aspect to uh, advanced computing capabilities. And then, then comes quantum, which is, this is another way to achieve spectacular performance gains for a key set of performance, uh, a key set of applications. And, and so really that's, that's how we see the world is, how does quantum fit into, as opposed to rub up against the classical world? It's, it's another, tool in the toolbox. It has some great uses for some things. It's probably not appropriate for others. Happily, I don't get questions anymore from people saying, when will I need to buy a quantum computer to replace my laptop? We don't have to deal with that anymore. It's, it's, we've started to understand that the world is a little bit different now. And so to that end, we're starting to see much more interest in how do I bring quantum into my existing uh, computational ecosystem. So it's not about what can quantum do, it's how do I bring quantum in because I already have a large data center, I have legacy code, I have existing workloads I want to accelerate or have some new applications I want to explore in quantum. So it's, it's, it's much more of a mature attitude and much more of an integrative one. It's let's make quantum inclusive as opposed to what I saw a few years ago was quantum was this island over here and classical was this island over here. And you had engineers and physicists kind of glaring at each other across the channel. Um, there's much more integrative efforts going on forward here. And that's great because that brings in so many more HPC centers and enterprise HPC folks who don't have to be afraid of quantum anymore. They're looking at it more as, in some cases, in its simplest terms, a black box accelerator. Put that quantum thing over there, run some wires into my existing uh, computational ecosystem, and that's all I want to know. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, I think it's more of a, a realistic perspective of what quantum can bring to a larger base of, of potential users. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Hearing you say all that makes me, maybe if I'm listening to this and I haven't experienced quantum for the first time, I'm thinking quantum computing is just another step forward in HPC. What's, is, is that right? Is there something different about quantum qualitatively? What would you say about that? Well, as I said earlier, you know, the, the fact that classical computing is so well understood, it has such a history uh, of, of, of algorithms, of implementations. You go back 60 or 70 years and you look at some of the early classical systems um, and, and they had plenty of time to evolve. 
Uh, you know, there's a, you know, you look at IBM back in the 40s and 50s, they were building, they were building business machines. And it took us, it took us many, many years to get to where we are now in terms of computational capability. And we built upon the, the, the progress of the previous years in a relatively measured way. Quantum just blows the doors off that because it all has to happen much faster and in parallel. We have to have algorithms, we have to have hardware, we have to have use cases, software development tools, and that all is happening near simultaneously compared to the relatively slow and measure rollout of the classical world. So that adds a certain amount of, of, of I don't want to say hysteria, but a certain amount of, we got to get this stuff done, we've got to move fast. We have to prove that quantum can take its place going forward here in as part of the overall computational ecosystem. So it, it kind of brings a certain amount of enthusiasm to the sector. And that and the fact that, as I said earlier, the math and the physics are fundamentally different. And to be quite frank, non-intuitively obvious. It, if there's a, there's a famous quote from Feynman that says, you know, basically, if anybody says they understand quantum, they probably don't understand it. And it, it really is, um, a mystery uh, to a lot of folks. And one of the one of the examples I like to use is we're still talking about algorithms for the quantum space being developed today. Uh, and, and they're complicated and they're complex and they're unproven. If you look at the classical world, one of my favorite examples is, is say something like, oh, this is a good example. It's called the Lambert problem. Uh, the things that JPL uses to calculate how I'm going to launch a spacecraft from Earth and put it on Mars the fundamental math for that came out of a mathematician in the 1700s. Hmm. Navier-Stokes equations, the equations that help you figure out airflow across a wing, that math is 200 years old. There isn't a, risk, a rich history of quantum mathematics, quantum algorithms. We're inventing that stuff as it goes along. So it's almost as if everything is new and different about quantum. We don't have this rich history certainly from an algorithmic standpoint, a mathematics standpoint, or even a fundamental theory standpoint uh, that we enjoy in the classical world. Yeah. And, and speaking of new things, are you seeing any shifts or new behaviors in enterprise um, enterprise customers in the last like 18 to 24 months? And maybe if you've got any specific examples you could share, that'd be great. Well, what we're seeing uh, in terms of, and, and we actually went out and talked to, I think we did a survey of about 415 different quantum compute of companies out there in the in the enterprise and HPC world who are looking to think about how quantum could, could come into their workspace. And, and, and what we really found is, you know, it's a very realistic viewpoint because if you talk to the companies, they're not interested in quantum technology in and of itself. They're interested in doing things like driving innovation, opening up R&D opportunities, reducing time to market, and increasing revenues. And so what you're seeing is lots and lots of interest within the entire HPC slash enterprise IT space to, to, to kick the tires on quantum. What's out there? What can it bring to us that we haven't been able to explore before? And so we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm from almost a wide base of folks. And what I used to talk about was I used to say that um, one of the main drivers of exploration of quantum within within a wide range of potential end users was you know FOMO, fear of missing out. Oh my God, what's going to happen? It's almost now we've moved into the stage of, of Romo, the risk of, of missing out. Companies are starting to say, if we don't get on board, if we're not properly configured. Now, you know, quantum is not, it's, it's not camera ready today. There's going to be a, a stage of development. It is embryonic. It's in that very uh, innovation adoption stage right now. But companies are starting to think, 
if we miss this and we are two or three years behind our competitors, that could be a significant competitive dis disadvantage. So people are starting to realize they have to have some baseline basal understanding of what's going on in the quantum space to make sure that at some point they'll go, this is the time to go widespread, to think about R&D, to think about production environments for quantum. And so they're doing a kind of maintenance. A lot of companies are doing maintenance uh, routines to understand the problem, to understand where the technology is going, and more importantly, to understand what quantum can bring to their particular workloads in their particular verticals. Yeah. So for people who haven't started doing that yet, who are maybe thinking about starting their, their quantum journey, um, what signals should they be looking for that it's time to jump in? Well, you know, you know, the key here is you have to know your workloads and you have to know what your choke points are. What are your real pain points uh, in terms of unmet computational capabilities? And, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you'll find in the, in the classical HPC world where you may have uh, a piece of code that's 500,000 lines, but there's 10 lines that are consuming 95% of your computational requirements. So it's, it's, it's a close examination of your workloads understanding where your unmet computational demands are, and then trying to figure out if quantum can address those in a way that gives you a price performance advantage going forward. And so we're starting to see a lot of companies. I, I understand that, that um, you know, companies like BMW, like Airbus, a lot of the financial houses are exploring the potential for quantum to give them capabilities that they may they didn't have before or offer a, a service that they didn't have before. One of the one of the great examples in the financial sector right now is the idea of uh, risk assessments of a portfolio. So say you have 50 investments uh, in, in, in a portfolio you have and, and what you want to do is figure out, OK, what are the 30 um, or if something happens in one of those um, investments, if you uh, if you're concerned about it's, it's future risk changing, either becoming more risky, less risky, whatever. How do you optimize a change in that? Uh, doing those kinds of calculations to figure out the optimal portfolio composition can be relatively complicated because you've got 50 different, the combinatorics blow up. Uh, so it, it may take an awful long time to do that. In the quantum space, there may soon become the opportunity where you could do that in almost near real time. So if, if a, uh, a broker gets a call from a concerned client that said, I just read this, you can give a relatively fast turnaround on an assessment of the risk that that particular development brings to the table. And so that's a, that's a, that's a real-time application of being able to do something in a way that previously you wouldn't have even bothered to try to optimize because the classical world says you just can't, you just can't turn it around that fast. Yeah, the, the financial market seems to be one of the I guess, main drivers in quantum computing. What do you think that they're seeing that is like within quantum computing that makes them so interested in it? Well, the, well, the key there is, is the application. Um, right now, because we're in this, this era, it's called uh, NISC, Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum. Um, you're, you're looking at imperfect results. Uh, quantum computers right now are noisy when you put a signal in. If you, if you think you're putting in a one versus a zero, Sometimes it's not really a one. Sometimes it's not really a zero. There's error there in the input. There's error in the calculations. You may say, okay, give me a, uh, an OR gate. If it's one or zero, put out a one because you're ORing it. Um, there's errors there. If you have two gates talking to each other, there's errors there. Then there's measurement. You get an answer and it, it, it may say one, but sometimes you'll measure the exact same thing and it'll be a zero when you, when you collapse out of the quantum goodness realm and you get into the classical world. So there's tons of errors in there. 
So right now, one of the main beneficial applications within this realm is optimization because you're looking for a better solution. You are in some sense error tolerant because if you make mistakes, if you don't get the perfect answer, but you get a better answer uh, that may have certain uncertainties to it, you're still doing better off than you were in uh, previously. So the idea of this, this issue of error tolerant applications in the short term are the most attractive and optimization right now is one of the key elements or the key applications that really feed into this issue of optimization. A good example would be customer affinity. The idea that if, if I know that you just looked at six ads, statistically speaking, or in some world, I can come up with an algorithm that says, I have a really good idea of what I should put him as his seventh ad um, because of what he's looked at previously. Well, if in, in a classical world, you would hope that you always get that seventh ad right. In the quantum world, if you have error, you have a mistake, you have a miscalculation, you get the wrong ad one time out of 10, it's not the end of the world. Um, you don't want to, I don't want to take off in a plane that was completely designed by a quantum <laughs> computer next year, uh, because there the, you know, the, uh, the ramifications of being perhaps a little off are a little more concerning, but there are applications that are error tolerant. And that's where uh, for the next few years, these NISC error machines, I think are going to make their mark as the sector move towards better error corrected systems that really try to squash down how much error is in the system that allows for greater fidelity, greater accuracy, and a more broader scope of applications that result from those error reductions. Interesting. Okay, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to go back to it. Um, question is, what does winning have? What does winning quantum have to do with HPC, high performance compute? What, what do you mean, winning winning quantum? Yeah, um, winning being able to most effectively apply it, being able to use the best quantum compute resources that we have. How does that tie in with with HPC? Well, the thing is, H HPC is, it's it's funny, if you look at the history of HPC, and, and you can go back almost 30 or 40 years, HPC performance has, over those 40 years, doubled approximately every 13.9 months, which means that literally, if you stand around and wait till next year, for the same price, you can get a machine that's functionally twice as fast. Hmm. And that's a really good thing. And 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 and, and people have gotten very used to that. And, it, and, 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 and the advantages of, of, of doing that means that you don't have to do some of the other things. You don't have to rewrite your software. You don't have to go through a lot of pain and suffering. Well, that particular curve has really started to um, taper off. And performance gains in HPC are starting to slow down. People will talk about this phenomenon called the end of Moore's Law or Denard scaling, which means it's it's getting more expensive, it's getting more uh, power consumptive to get those kinds of performance gains. So the trade-offs to, to get those performance gains means that the machines are harder to build. Uh, 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 my favorite example, I was down at Oak Ridge National Lab a couple of weeks ago, where they rolled out Department of Energy's newest HPC, the Frontier System. Uh, it's, a, it's an exascale system. It does 10 to the 18th floating point operations per second. Uh, it runs at about 30 megawatts of power, and it costs about $600 million. Now, the interesting rule of thumb for uh, power consumption HPC is 30. Uh, you basically pay about a million dollars a year of electricity per megawatt. So they're looking at a $30 million a year electric bill just to keep the machine running. So over the four or five years or six years of that system, you're looking at about $200 million in electricity on top of the $600 million you paid for it on top of the $200 million you required to fix up the facility to take care of a machine of that capability. 
So the, the technical requirements that are needed to build these kinds of systems means that certain things have to change. If we're going to get new and increased levels of performance, we have to turn to new technologies. And there's a whole bunch out there right now in terms of different ways to beat these, these issues of more power, more cost. And quantum offers the ability to take some of those really power hungry, expensive computational workloads and take them over. And so it could almost be, in some sense, a reset, which means that the performance gains in, in advanced computing can continue. And in fact, they may even increase for certain applications that quantum can deliver, increase significantly. But at the same time, you're kind of alleviating some of the pressure because, quite frankly, not a lot of organizations can afford a $600 million system anymore. Uh, in fact, there's the U.S. government and a couple of other major governments, but I don't see a lot of companies uh, writing checks for those kind of systems. So something has to break if we want to stay on this continued course of increased uh, performance capability. And quantum offers a wonderful reset for some of the most important workloads that are out there that demands a $600 million machine today. And so that's that's what's really, I think, interesting about this. It's another way for the scientists and engineers to say, hmm, what are we going to do now to keep on the same performance trend that everyone has gotten so used to for the last 40 years? And now they just take for granted in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, there aren't many aren't many people who are writing $600 million checks, but at least now we've got we've got cloud access. So you don't have to have your own HPC compute, just like you don't have to have your own quantum computer on premise. Um, what do you think about this idea that, uh, well, so you, you have worse latency, right? If you're talking with a, with a quantum computer on the cloud somewhere, um, maybe also worse security if you need to have it on premise. Uh, what do you, what do you think about the conversation between on-premise compute versus cloud compute for quantum computers? Well, first off, I, I'm so thrilled that there is cloud access capability right now for, for quantum computing for one really simple reason it lowers the barrier of entry to exploration of quantum computing. In say 15 years ago, if, if, if somebody in the CTO said, okay, let's go out and get into HPC. Okay, you're, you're writing a check now to Cray Research or it's now it's the organization HPE, $25 million. Now I've got to hire a staff. So I got to go out and find 10 to 15 experts in HPC. I've got to spend a couple of years writing code before anything interesting really happens. Um, so the barriers to entry there are pretty pretty onerous. I can get on on any one of these cloud-based access models and for literally pennies start to explore the potential of quantum computing through a cloud access model with virtually no cost. Uh, and, and so you're seeing an explosion of experimentation of organizations kicking the tires that would never be able to justify a significant budget to explore the technology if they had to buy an on-prem system. Um, one of the numbers I hear kicking around is quantum computers. It seems to be the price point uh, I hear most often is say $20 million for an on-prem system. Hmm. Now, that's not to say that cloud access models will always be the only opportunity, because as you mentioned, there are some really nice advantages to having an on-prem capability. And so we did a survey a while back, and, and we probably figured that in the, in the early stages of, of, of kind of... Um, I don't want to say normal quantum computing deployment, but at least what we'll see in the next say three to five years, we're looking at about a third of the organizations that we talk to from a revenue perspective committing to on-prem. And it's because of you want to get rid of the latency. I've got a job that maybe 
running back and forth between my HPC and my quantum system, and I can't tolerate the latencies of sending it off to the cloud, dealing with the fact that the internet may be up or down, or the cloud service provider may not be as fast, so I want it on-prem. Or maybe I, I, I want proprietary information to be protected, so it's not flying over wires. Uh, or, or maybe I know I'm going to use my quantum computer 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm going to pin the performance of that. And, and price-wise, the, 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 the best way to do that is to have something on-prem. The cloud guys are generally configured more towards intermittent or at least not 100% utilization of their systems. They want you to come in. We use a rule of thumb in the HPC world that if, if you're using your HPC more than about 30% of the time, it's probably cheaper to run an on-prem system than it is to go to the cloud. Now that's a that's a pretty rough estimate. There's a lot of reasons to migrate to the cloud beyond that, but it basically means if you're pinning your quantum computing capability on the cloud, you should probably think about bringing it on-prem. So cloud access model, it's great for low barrier to entry. It's great for folks that kick the tires and it's great for smaller companies who don't, who, who can't economically justify an on-prem system. So it, it offers a host of availability for the new technology and it'll also offer for those that have some of the reasons I mentioned earlier, the ability to, to basically plunk down perhaps $20 million and put something in the basement next to your other big machines. Something to note here before moving on is that we should probably tie two ideas that Bob's talked about together. First, the need to be able to use both quantum computing within your existing HPC infrastructure, and second, the need to be able to run on-prem. Most HPC tools aren't built with quantum computing in mind, and most quantum computing tools aren't built with HPC in mind. The tools that do work across both typically use the cloud access model, which, as Bob said, is great for many organizations. However, if you have a reason to have HPC and or quantum resources on-prem, you need a tool that can be deployed on-prem and can orchestrate across all types of compute resources. That's exactly what we've built with Orchestra. Yeah, I, I like that you you mentioned the maintenance costs, right? You've got to hire a team, you've got to have the facility, and that that goes maybe even doubly so for these very sensitive quantum effect, you know, quantum computers. Um, I'm curious, have you done any research or uh, an analysis into looking at this this talent shortage that a lot of people are talking about in the quantum space? I, I mean, certainly there there is a talent shortage. There's just not enough folks to go around. If you kind of stick with, you know, do I need a person who has a PhD in quantum physics to help write quantum software? Uh, and so what we've seen is because of, in my sense, the, the maturation of the ecosystem, um, you'll see that um, a good example would be a lot of quantum software companies who are developing software for quantum systems. They rightly say that they are hardware agnostic, that they're not particularly driving down into any specific hardware modality, trapped ions, superconducting, photonics. And what they've done is they've abstracted some of the technical details of the hardware. So they're writing software in a software environment that doesn't really require deep understanding of the mechanics underneath the hood. And the example I like to use, and you freely admitted you're a Python guy, can you explain to me how a CMOS AND gate works within a microprocessor? Uh, not within this podcast, but I, I've got a little okay. bit of digital electronics experience. Cool, cool. Well, you're 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 a rarity among programmers. <laughs> but the, the point is, programmers and and it's the beauty of uh, the stack that you don't need to know too much about what's happening below you or above you. You just need to know how to communicate to those th those groups of the the abstraction and the implementation. Yeah. And so the sector, from at least a software perspective, has really moved away from having to require specific knowledge about the hardware and the quantum 
capabilities underlying. And then the other point of it is, remember, a quantum system, the quantum processor is one small component. There's all sorts of instrumentation and control systems and communications capability that exist in the classical world. So there is also a requirement for traditional hardware engineers, traditional software engineers, and all of the, the kinds of IT skills that you need. So think about quantum as it's really concentrated in some very narrow portions of the quantum space that have to deal with the quantum requirements. So the, the workforce requirement isn't as bad as I think some people make it out to be due to this kind of sophistication of the ecosystem. That said, I'm thrilled that there are more and more master's programs, and undergraduate degrees that are bringing out quantum um, intelligent students who can bring into the market. You don't need a PhD in quantum physics if you're looking at a software or hardware engineering perspective. So the educational system will, will, will start to catch up. It'll take a certain amount of time. And the other thing, of course, is, is retraining. HPC programmers are a, a, an organization of, of people who are used to new technology. So you're a software you're a software guy, you're writing for HPC, and someone says, oh, guess what? We just bought a machine, and 96% of our performance capabilities is GPUs. Do you ever write GPU code yet? And the guy goes, throw me the book. And he pages through the manual, and hopefully, six months later, he's got GPU code. Or you're saying, okay, we want you to write MPI, because we just bought a machine, and it's got 40,000 CPUs. Um, have you ever written for something that big? No, well, I'll figure it out. So the HPC world is usually pretty good at the software level to basically starting to take advantage of. So I look at lateral training uh, as, as another aspect of this. If you, if you peel back the hood of a lot of software companies out there in the quantum space, you'll find HPC programmers who have made a lateral change because they understand that performance is king and tell me what the software environment I'm living in and I'll do the best job I can. So the workforce element is there, the concern is there, but it's not as bad as I think people thought it was going to be as recently as say two or three years ago because of this this maturation of the stack. Yeah. Okay. Transitioning a little bit back to the the overall quantum computing market, um, at the end of 2021, things were looking pretty good. Um, a study said that there was going to be about or estimated about 22% annual growth through 2024. How much has that changed, if at all? I know inflation's in the news, everything like that. Um, has anything has anything been updated with that? Well, Ethan, it's funny you mentioned that because Hyperion Research did that particular study um, with the 22% CAGR. Uh, maybe you knew that. The, the point was that study was, uh, I'm, I'm an engineer by training and I don't understand how people do financial forecasting. So I did it by using data. So we went out and we talked to about 112 different quantum computing suppliers in the hardware and software base. And we asked them, what do you think your revenue growth is going to be in the next few years? Hmm. And because you always have to be careful when you ask people who have an agenda uh, to, to take everything they say at face value. People tend to be optimistic. So we went out and we talked to, as I said earlier, about 415 potential end users of quantum computing. And we asked them the same question about their budgets. Hmm. How much do you think you're going to be committing to quantum in, say, the next three years or so? And so we had basically the push and the pull of quantum computing, which really helped us come up with that. 22% CAGR for the next three years out. And what's fascinating about this is we did this in 2019, and then we did it in 2021. And if you take our 2019 numbers and draw a nice straight line, it merges perfectly with where we came out in 2021, and the line does continue on upward. And in fact, we're gearing up for doing yet another 
we, we actually have um, the funding to do the same market study for the next three years. So we're going to be surveying more quantum computing companies with a much greater, greater global reach. We've, we really hit the U.S. organizations hard. We managed to bring a lot of the EU folks in, and I want to really um, project out into some of the Asia-Pacific regions uh, as well to get more quantum computing suppliers and end users to help refine that. Uh, but it's, as I said, it's, it's not navel-gazing because I'm not smart enough to do that. So I just went with the data and drew some straight lines. And that's, that's where that came from. But the trend is, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the sector having reasonable growth. I, I am a little concerned about the, the sector heating up too hot um, because I don't want too much money flowing into it from an investment perspective. Because what that means, if there's a hiccup or if, if somebody has a down round from a VC or someone's revenues happens to slip a few quarters, people start to get all nervous and they get upset and they say, oh, my gosh, Quantum has, has not met up with our expectations. Funding starts to dry up. Customers start to get hesitant. So I'm a huge fan of stable, reasonable growth. I'm not looking for a hockey stick anytime soon, just until the sector really gets on its feet, hits that virtuous cycle where revenue pays for research, which generates products, which generates revenue. Um, that to me is, is when we can all breathe a huge sigh of relief and go, the sector is now self-sustaining. We haven't reached that point just yet. Yeah, and I think one of the big... Uh, concerns with everything heating up too fast is that it leads to cooling down later. Um, and so a big question on everyone's mind is well, what signs point towards a quantum winter and maybe what signs point away from it? Um, I'm glad you brought up quantum winter because I, I debated whether I was bringing it up and I didn't want to get to the whole explanation. <laughs> but yeah, right. The, the quantum winter origin is, is, is AI winter, which, which I lived through. Uh, the first time I went through graduate school, I actually took a bunch of AI classes and this was in the late 80s. And then the whole sector collapsed because of overfunding and unrealistic expectations. And by the way, none of the stuff I learned is relevant today. The entire sector reinvented itself with, with real potential as opposed to what we were doing in the 80s. Um, so it's, it's the combination of, of too much funding, uh, too much expectation, and not enough realizable results. And so the, the, you know, the idea of the winter, and actually the AI, it wasn't a winter, it was a, it was a glacial epoch. It took, it took 20 years uh, for that to recover. So hopefully, um, if we do see a certain amount of downturn in quantum, we won't have that kind of, you know, I'd like a, a quantum, you know, November, maybe <laughs> we could, we could tolerate that. Um, you know, but, but the idea here is, um, the concern within the enthusiasm of the VC sector. Uh, last year, I think there was about a hundred, uh, excuse me, there's about 1.5 billion of investment in the quantum computing sector globally from VCs. This year, we're looking at 3 billion. And in the early days of quantum, I like to see we had the investors were much more idealist. They were they were putting money in because they thought the technology was interesting and they hoped that it would it would yield some interesting results. What I'm starting to see is a little more pragmatism. Investors are, you know, your C rounds, your D rounds, and they're saying things like, OK, so where's the ROI coming from? What are your revenue projections? And when can I exit with my 20x return on uh, on investment here? And so there's a little more pragmatism here. And so I'm not sure that we can, we can talk about continued growth in VC right now. And what that does is I think it puts a little more onus on government funding. Now, government has been really heavily involved in quantum, primarily because Shor's algorithm, national security concerns, and then also the realization of performance gains across some really compelling applications. But governments are very involved in this. And the beauty of government programs, they're stable, they tend to be long-term, and they don't really demand demonstrated 
uh, return on investment. Now they sometimes they they're not as risk uh, what's the word I'm not, not risk averse, but they they don't like failure to the extent that VCs expect okay one out of five hits. Government programs like to be a little more predictable. No one in the government wants to be left holding the bag with a really really bad uh, research funding. Uh, but the stability there with the government, I think, is critical. And so as long as we see a nice mix of corporate venturing, and that a good example would be IBM. IBM is a big company. Most of their quantum computing funding comes from within. Intel would be another example. Um, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, these are these are big companies. They can afford to corporate venture as long as they view it as a, a promising market. Mm-hmm. VC guys, perhaps a little more sensitive to the vagaries of the sector and government those three entities, if they can balance each other out to, to provide stability, but risk with realistic expectations, we can avoid a severe quantum winter. But the one thing I, I can't forget was a few months ago, I was talking to some folks and one of, I was talking to a CEO of one of the quantum computing companies. And I asked about the specter of quantum winter. And he said, I have absolutely no idea if it's going to happen or not, but I'm preparing for it. Hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting you know, uh, assessment. It was, you know, it, the, the idea is quantum winter is out of his hands, but he's very interested in making sure that his company is the best position to weather it. Moderate expectations, not overly depending on single sources of funding, trying to be realistic about, about what their performance gains and demonstrating progress. I like the fact that a lot of companies right now are dealing with roadmaps. They're telling you, the beauty of it is they're telling you where they've been, where they are and where they want to go. And that demonstrates commitment, long-term commitment. IBM has, you know, uh, roadmaps that go out five, six years, but it also shows you that their progress is, is reasonable as well. And that helps moderate concerns about, about unrealistic expectations. If you can demonstrate we're getting progress uh, under our belts, where we're, successes are on the books and it's continued. So you can now, one of the things about Wall Street is, Wall Street doesn't really matter about risk if they can assess it and put a price on it. So if something's super risky, but the payoff is super great, they can accept that. It's when they can't calculate risk that they get nervous. And so the idea of stability, roadmaps, demonstrated progress in the sector is what helps mitigate that risk and helps investors put a price tag on the risk they're willing to accept. And that's kind of a mitigating factor when it comes to the the, the quantum world. And I'd like to see those kinds of efforts take place. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Last question to wrap things up here is if there's one piece of hard data uh, or a stat or a fact, do you think every enterprise leader should know about quantum? Um, wow. That's a really good question. And you've caught me completely off guard. Look, here's, here's my quick answer. Remember I talked about the 30 meg. It's not going to be a quick answer. Remember that 30 megawatt thing I talked about earlier, or there's a new machine going up in Argon, hopefully this year, that, that could be a 60 megawatt system. Okay, 60 megawatts, five years, that's 300 megawatts total. Uh, that's $300 million worth of electricity charges. What if you could offload 5% of that, that performance requirement onto a quantum computer that's running, say, in the kilowatt range? Okay, right up front, I've now paid... So what, what did I say? $300 million and I'm loading 5%. So that's $15 million of savings in electricity. So I could say to an executive or a, a manager at Argonne, if you can load 5% of your computational capability on a quantum system, you save $15 million right up front. 
So if you spend $15 million on a quantum computer, you've already broken even. You haven't paid a penny yet. So the idea of quantum as a price performance accelerator, I think is an underappreciated aspect of this. Not only can you get very interesting performance gains, but you can do it at a power level that completely blows away classical counterparts. And I think people need to understand that power performance of quantum presents a very fascinating opportunity because as I said, when when quantum when classical computers scale, the more hardware you add, you get a linear scaling of power consumption. With quantum, it's just not that bad. When you double the number of qubits, you don't double the power consumption because most of the power that goes into a quantum system is the classical stuff. It's the control systems. It's all the instrumentation. The quantum processor will scale very, very politely and very delicately. And so we're not looking at a 20 or 50 megawatt quantum system in the near future. And so power performance, in my mind, is a key, almost unexamined advantage to quantum that I think more and more people are going to become aware of over time, especially, and we're seeing this all over data centers in the world, sustainability issues is becoming a much more important concern within some of these data centers. Uh, how much money am I spending? Am I ecologically sound? Am I just sucking up power that that goes into waste heat that contributes to environmental issues? Or can I do something better? And I think quantum offers an opportunity to do something better at a much more sustainable and, and, and ecologically friendly environment. So that wasn't a quick answer, but <laughs> uh, that's that's fine. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming into the Quantum cool. Pod. Even though you're uh, not a big fan of Python, this has been very insightful. So thank you. <laughs> well, just check out C. Just play with it a little. It'll break your heart, but eventually you may like it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Quantum Pod and have a favorite takeaway. If you do, reach out to us on social media and tell us what it is. I especially like that with the methodology Bob used in the survey we referenced, he found that the push and pull both showed expected growth in the quantum industry. If you're hungry for more information on the connection between HPC and quantum, be sure to read HPC Wire's article featuring Zapata's very own Tim Herzl, link in the show notes. Wherever you listen to the Quantum Pod, be sure to like, subscribe, and maybe even leave a review. Until next time, this is Ethan Hansen reminding you that life, like the quantum computing industry, moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. <laughs>